Welcome to the Whistleblower Newsroom. I'm Christina Borgeson. This is the third of a series of interviews with Catherine Austin Fitz, who is internationally known for her ongoing work blowing the whistle on high-level government and corporate criminal activity in the financial arena. Fitz is also publisher of the Solari Reports, publications that take deep dives into various subjects from a financial perspective. Today, she's here to talk about a Solari report titled Taxation with or without representation, in which she details how American taxpayers are essentially financing a criminal enterprise, their government, while paving the way for their own enslavement by essentially controlled digital banking. Fitz offers solutions and actions citizens can take to turn the tide, but makes it clear that time is of the essence. Welcome, Catherine. Hi, Christina. It's good to be back. Today, we're going to talk about your Solari report, taxation with or without representation. I know most Americans are getting really tired of seeing billions and billions of their tax dollars being used in a way that is illegal under our existing laws. I would say a significant amount of our tax dollars are managed in a way which is outside of the financial management laws and the constitutional laws and regulations, but are increasingly breaking the law or being used in what I would describe as an inversion where people say by administrative policy, it's legal for them to break the laws, which it's not. But you know, when they have a lot of guns, it's hard to object. Give us examples of this criminal activity Okay, and how it's allowed. There are many examples in many different areas, but let me start with the one which is the most publicly documented by the government. We have laws in the constitution as, a, as to how government money and, and financial accounts are to be managed. And the important thing to understand before I start is the federal financial cash flows, the money is managed by a three-party system. First of all, the treasury, with the different agencies has accounts. The Treasury's bank account is at the New York Fed and the New York Fed and its members manage those bank accounts. But the information and IT systems are, are run primarily by defense contractors and, and software companies, okay? So, so the majority of the government money is controlled and operated by private banks. The New York Fed is a private bank owned by its members and defense contractors. So the, the banks, the defense contractors basically control the train tracks that the money runs over. I just want to make this clear enough for a fifth grader to understand. Okay. Our tax dollars are being managed by private banks and defense contractors. Is that correct? Again, it's a three-party system. You have treasury, and in theory, the Treasury Department and the Secretary of Treasury are in charge of the policies and Congress dictates the policies. But as a day-to-day -day matter, the majority of the management of the money and financial and other assets is done by private defense contractors and private banks. So for example, I told you in one of our last conversations when I was Assistant Secretary of Housing, and I was trying to get a hold of the data I needed to see if we were in compliance with the law related to financial management, I would consistently ask the largest defense contractor in the world for the data and they would refuse to give it to me. 
there is a statute that says if you are a government contractor, your work product belongs to the government and therefore is subject to laws that so, govern the government, including FOIA right. regulations. So is correct? money not necessarily FOIA? There's Freedom of get, Information Act, I should right. say. So we, we need to discuss FOIA separately. Um, everything I'm going to tell you now in this section is available at missingmoney.salary.com and a website it links to hudmissingmoney.salary.com. There's a wealth of information for everything I'm going to say. Okay, so we have this three-party system. Then if you look at the laws that determine how our money is supposed to be spent when it's received by the government, you have the constitution and the constitution says two things among others. It says the federal accounts shall be subject to public disclosure. So there's supposed to be disclosure of how our money was used. And before our money is used, it is to be uh, approved in an appropriation by Congress. So Congress has to approve the budget as to how the money is going to be spent. And then the Treasury has to report to the citizens, here's what we did with your money and to Congress. So there needs to be a plan approved by our representatives. And there needs to be a disclosure of whether or not the plan was followed or not and how the plan was followed. So approval first by our duly elected rep representatives and then report to us and our representatives about whether the plan was followed. So that's the constitutional layer. Then there's a series of financial management laws and they're all described in the legal section at missingmoney.slurry.com. Those laws basically so, say what? Those laws say you're supposed to manage all the money subject to the disclosure and the appropriations in a, in a practical, in, a, in, a, in, in an appropriate manner. So it's just best practices in yeah, terms and of- And don't waste the taxpayer's money. And don't waste the taxpayer's money, right. Okay. So, so there's a series of laws and they apply to the different, there are 24 major agencies, but then there's a whole series and I, I haven't done, you know, they might've changed it since I did the last count, but then there's about 150 other entities you know, like the Panama Commission and, you know, different sort of pots of, of, of activities that might have a bank account. And then you have all the contractors and bank that work for all those agencies in the treasury. And they are oftentimes subject to the exceptions, okay? So, so we have the constitution, we have the financial management laws. When a law is passed, Christina, uh, regulations are promulgated that help you with the details of how you implement those laws. Okay, so we have the constitution, we have the financial management laws, we have regulation, and then we have another level called administrative policy. Okay, and administrative policy is where people get together and they work out details of how they're going to do some of the administrative things, which is uh, in accordance with the regulations, the laws and the constitution. It's complicated because not only are they receiving our tax payments, but they're issuing securities and they're issuing guarantees on mortgages and securities and other financial products. Explain to people what securities are. When your pension fund buys a US treasury bond, that's a borrowing by the US government. But instead of taking out a loan at a bank, they sell a bond. And, and so it's a loan that's been converted into a securities. And the US government is the largest issuer of bonds in the world. When I became Assistant Secretary of Housing, what I discovered is the credit issuance was literally out of control and criminal. 
at HUD and the what's called the Federal Housing Administration, which is the largest, was at the time the largest insurer of mortgages in the world. And, and literally all sorts of sort of illegal and criminal things were going on. And, you know, I told you Oliver North was said to have said that HUD was the covert candy, was the candy store of covert revenues. So a lot of money was getting pulled out the back door. Anyway, so my job as part of the clean team was to go in and figure out how you could change the laws and the administration so that this couldn't happen again. You know, so how do you rebuild the financial controls, make sure it can't happen? So we institute a set of reforms and OMB was so enthusiastic about them, they then took them, we passed them in the HUD Reform Act and then they took them government wide in a series of financial management laws. And one of the things that these new laws said was that if you issue any credit that you anticipate losing money on, like an insurance company, it, it posts a loan loss reserve. So let's say you issue $100 of insurance, you get a $5 fee and you set aside $2 for any losses that occur. Okay, it's a loan loss reserve. So what we said is if you're losing money on your insurance programs, you have to post a loan loss reserve. Second thing we said is you have to have accrual accounts. So we need to know to turn the ship before we hit the iceberg, not after. <laughs> right, right. Right. And, and so the third thing was, therefore, we need to have audited financial statements that include actuarial reports to make sure that the loan loss reserves are correct, but also accrual accounts so that we know where we are and we can turn and you know, not hit the iceberg. Anyway, so what happened was in 1994, a process occurred whereby the agency started to report their failure to produce audited financial statements. <laughs> so, so they were supposed to start in 94. And what has happened in 94 and every year since is the federal government has essentially said, we're not, you know, we can't do it, we won't do it, we're not complying. <laughs> now, why is that not a criminal offense that puts whoever is in charge of saying, no, we're not gonna do that on the, uh, you know, in the court? Why isn't that person taken well, to court? So the most important court is the court of popular opinion. Our representatives vote, you know, vote the appropriations. And if the appropriation, if the constitutional provisions related to appropriations and disclosure are not being obeyed, they have the ability to say, we're not gonna appropriate money until you produce audit. No, uh, first of all, the court of public opinion doesn't even know that this is going on. Nobody knows that they, okay, they so, whoever uh, is supposed to do so the you audits. Can't, you can't say nobody because this story has been published again and again and again every year for years and years and years. No, what, but okay, but still I'm saying most people are not aware of it. Christina, I'm going to disagree with you right now. Okay. I don't know a person in America who doesn't know that the spending is non-sustainable, irresponsible, and all sorts of funny business is going on. I've never met a pair. Oh, of no, 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 no. Here's what I'm. No, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is whoever made the decision, the first person to make the first decision not to provide audited reports, that should have triggered right there some kind of action, some kind of legal well, but the action. action. The action was Congress's to take. Congress should have said, that's not acceptable and we are not gonna keep, continue to appropriate money or we're gonna cut your appropriations until you, until you conform. The first action was Congress, they didn't do it. I guess what I'm saying is 
if you're a government employee and there's this, these new regulations are in place and you have, are not honoring the regulations, Congress threatening to not give you your money. Okay. I, I get it. That's dire, but I think it's even more important to hold the individual to account for not doing their job. The system is designed so that every individual does their job. What they do is they report out, this year we had 59 billion. So the first one we found was at HUD. We have 59 billion of undocumentable adjustments and so we can't balance the book. And every employee, I believe, who published that were not responsible to go figure out what the undocumentable adjustments were and they never got an order to do it. And the inspector general said, don't let it happen next year. When of course it happened again next year. If you're an accountant for the agency that is supposed to create this and, and you have fallen on the job because you haven't figured this out, you haven't done your job. You have to be held accountable is, is what I'm trying to say. First of all, if you look at the employees working for the government, when I was there, they were excessively competent. They could have produced audit financial problems. No problem. Okay. If you look at the banks, they, you know, they produce audit and financial statements every year for themselves. They have no problem knowing how to do it. Same with the defense contractors. And why and wasn't it systems. done? Because it's not permitted politically. Everybody in America wants their check and there's a financial coup going on. And the people doing the financial coup do not want it mentioned that there's a financial coup going on, let alone documented. The system falls apart at at this juncture, right? At the no audited reports juncture. And you're basically saying the no audited reports juncture is a plan, is a criminal plan that yes. is outside the purview of the people who are supposed to do the audited re reports. Okay. I'm going to jump ahead, but then I'm going to come back and it's worth taking the time to go through this. Okay. In, um, Kelly O'Meara, the wonderful Kelly O'Meara and I were working on, I was helping her do a big cover story that would come out on September 15th, 2001, about the 3.3 plus trillion dollars missing from DOD and HUD. It's going right. to be a cover story at every congressional desk. That Monday, Rumsfeld comes out in a press conference and says, oh, by the way, there's 2.3 trillion missing from DOD. And we thought, okay, he's trying to do a modified hangout to get ahead of our story. Wrong, the next day was 9-11. Kelly finally got that story out, I think in October, but of course, no attention to it because everybody's busy off on the war on terrorism. A congressman from Tennessee decides he's gonna run for governor. He's a Republican candidate and he's on the budget and appropriations committee. He comes to a town hall meeting and there are 30 of my neighbors in the county seat in a local bank and he's making a presentation. We should vote for him because he's more financially responsible and he'll do a better job of running the state's accounts. And the people in this audience are people who really care about fiscal responsibility. Tennessee is one of the best managed states fiscally. So he's talking and I, so I raised my hand and I said, there's 3.3 trillion missing from defense and HUD. And he says, yes, I know in front of all my neighbors and and they're like, oh my God, she's right, it's true. And I said, well, what are you doing about it? And he, he looked at me and he said, nothing, there's nothing I can do. And he was on the budget committee and on defense appropriations. 
So you're basically saying that the government is refusing to obey financial management laws because it's captured by fill in the blank. The process began in 1994 to 96, where agencies started to report that they couldn't produce audited financial statements. And when they would report that, occasionally they would say that how much their undocumentable adjustments were. So the first one we found, I believe it was, you, you can see this at missingmoney.solary.com. The first one was nine, 59 billion at HUD. And then if for two years in a row, DOD had 2.3 train of undocumentable adjustments and 1.1 train undocumentable adjustments. Now, now people always say, how can the government lose more money or misplace more money than, than their entire budget? And what I tell you is with securities fraud, it's easy to do, especially when those securities are government guaranteed securities. And I believe, and based on anecdotal evidence, that there are trillions of dollars of securities that have been issued off balance sheet that aren't recorded on our financial statements. So there's quite a mess here. Anyway, so, so we start a process where, where the undocumentable adjustments start to be reported. And that goes on and on and on and on. And as of 2015, I had found 12 trillion of undocumentable adjustments. And every year I would highlight this and publish on this and explain this. And then um, at the end of 2015, which was really gonna be the last full financial year for Obama that was reported, um, they report 6.5 trillion missing which was three times the most in any one year, uh, just from DOD. And I took one look at it and I said, oh my God, this is a cut and run. And the leading defense contractor that had been running the payment systems at both HUD and DOD spun their IT government division off. So I'm assuming that they pushed the liabilities onto another balance sheet. And That's I started- That's what you mean by cut and run. Yeah. I started to talk about 6.5 trading missing on top of the rest that we had found. And a professor from Michigan State University, Dr. Mark Skidmore heard me and he thought she has to be wrong. You know, you can't, you can't have more money missing than you have total budget in a year, that's impossible. He's a budget expert. So he went into the financial reports at, the, at, at DOD and dug into the reports and discovered I was right. And it was all documented, government documentation. So he came to me and we agreed that he, he would get some of his students and do a survey for HUD and DOD for all those years. And what I had taken up to, uh, I don't know, you know, I'd taken it up about halfway, that he went, he did a survey and he and his students over about a six month period identified 21 trillion as of the end of 2015. So who's stealing our tax dollars? So I don't what? think anybody's, I would not describe this as stealing. I would describe this as a change of control. This is a coup implemented by financial means. In 1997, I was working with a group of excellent pension fund leaders on how we could re-engineer government investment to radically increase productivity and wealth so that the pension funds could afford the baby boomers retirement. They're a wonderful group of people. And I made a presentation to them. I was out at Safeguard Scientifics in 1997. I made a presentation and I showed them how we could re-engineer the government money and budget so it could work. And the head of the largest pension fund in the country looked at me and he said, you don't understand, it's too late. And I said, what do you mean it's too late? 
he said they have given up on the country and they're moving all the money out starting in the fall. And that's exactly when this started to happen. It was October 1997, which is the beginning of the fiscal 1998 year. And that's when all this crazy business just started to happen. And what I believe he was referring to was when they failed to get the budget deal in, in 1995 and Ruben invaded the exchange stabilization fund to get money to keep a variety of things going. I think the people who manage the financial system said, you know something, democracy will never work. Everybody votes for the person who'll give them another check. We cannot broker a financially responsible system within this governmental mechanism. That's it, we're just gonna suck the system dry. And, and basically what they did, no, this is a coup. This is a financial coup. So I have many writings over the years on financial coup d'etat. What they did, Christina, was they started to issue, you know, they, they issued massive amounts of government debt. They put that debt in everybody's pension funds and then they suck the money out of the government, okay? And it goes elsewhere. So, so the debt is going up and they're putting the debt in your pension fund. And when but it's- Well, what said, mechanisms do they suck the money out of the government? Okay, there are about, if you've ever read the Joy of Cooking book, Joy of Cooking book, which you yeah, know, oh, you're saying, yeah, I know you said there, there are a million ways to do it. There are yeah. thousands of recipes and I'm happy to talk about, you know, to give you examples, but that's, we'll get lost in the complexity of it. Okay. So let's just stay at the framework level. Just understand there are thousands of ways of getting the money from here to there. But I think they gave up on the, on the governmental mechanism and they said, we're just going to take the money, but we're going to take the money over a process where when it's all said and done, their pension funds are full of IOUs from themselves. And the government is essentially bankrupt because we've stolen all the money and they've got a whole bunch of, you know, their retirement assets or bonds that they as the taxpayers are liable for. And then we'll, we'll stick them in a situation where they have to be financially responsible because the only thing they can do is steal and screw each other. Me as the average American taxpayer, it makes me not want to pay my taxes. Right now we're paying taxes, you know, so, so look at Fauci's operation. Fauci's operation, in my opinion, based on Bobby Kennedy's book, is an operation that's designed to poison Americans. He's killing people. He's a death killer. He kills with a pen. And we're funding it with our tax dollars. So every year we fund it. And then Fauci runs a regulatory process, which is criminal, you know, because they allow pharmaceutical companies to essentially fund royalties for, you know, they're in business with them. They make money together. And then what they do is they approve drugs which poison us and our children. Well, I'll tell you that Operation Warp Speed, that, that was a shocker to me when I learned that basically right. what they were doing is they were making these vaccines while during the clinical trials, and we're not talking 10 to 15 years, we're talking months of clinical trials, first of all. So, you know, and then what they would do is while they're making the vaccines, and then they would put them on the trucks. Uh, if they if, if it was determined in this three-month process or four-month process whatever that the drugs didn't were no good we'd already we the taxpayer paid for those bad bad drugs and and they were just they just disposed of them they got rid of them next and then the next vaccine and anything that showed any kind of movement well then that's what what would become the vaccine that they gave to people but of course they're poisonous too. So well, but we paid not only for the vaccines that we that they gave us that poisoned us, we paid for vaccines that 
they said didn't work. That right. billions and billions and billions of dollars. Right. right. So how do we get out of paying for that? That's why we wrote the taxation piece, because what you know what the, many of the top people would like to do is pull the country apart. So if we just stop paying our taxes and that's all we do, then it's much easier to pull the country apart. You know, it's hard to organize politically to do something about this. So there are many things we can do and there are many ways we can organize. And one of, I think the best hopes is for the states who have good state AGs and state legislators that we start to talk about this. And, and, and start to talk about whether or not it is possible to organize under state law escrows that are held and used for taxpayer purposes um, that, that hold the federal government accountable. So we send money to Washington, Washington sends money to the state. The state has the power to escrow the money and say, you know something, don't send us any money. We'll pay for it out of the escrow. And we're not going to, other than the military and, and interest on the debt, we're not going to send you any money. We'll send you a portion, but until you obey the law, we're not going to send you any of the others. We'll take care of the rest here. And in many states, that means if you are free from all sorts of federal laws and regulations that just drain and waste your money, you're much better off. What states are we talking about here? The first states that could do this are the ones in, in financially good shape. But before a state does that, they need to look at the situation and understand you've got to take an action because you keep financing a criminal operation. So if you look at what the central banks are up to, the central banks are going to come out with CBDC. And if you look at how they do it, they're going to destroy all state sovereignty. If you look at what they're doing with the WHO Treaty, they're going to destroy national and state sovereignty. So the first thing you need is you need a, a critical mass of citizens and a critical mass of state legislatures and a state AG to understand, you know, this is the whole ball game. We're dealing with a coup d'etat. And if we continue to finance the coup d'etat, we're not going to make it. Aren't these state budgets also beholden to uh, yes. federal contractors yes. and all that? Yes. The states have equally gotten, gotten dependent on the same banks and on the same um, defense contractors. But let me give you an example, because I think we don't want to bankrupt the government. We want to take the government back. In other words, I'm sick of the banks and defense con contractors controlling the government. Right. And I would love to see the citizens take the government back. So restore the government to sovereignty, OK? So let me give you an example. I tell a story at the beginning of taxation of how I clawed my money back. So at the time I did this, the missing money, today the missing money as of 2015, and I should just say they stopped providing disclosure on undocumentable adjustments after 2015. They give us documentation on adjustments, but not which ones are unsupported. So we can't Well, update. yeah, that, that was the, what is it, the FAS? Uh, FASA B56 basically saying, for national security reasons, we don't have to tell you how we're spending this money anymore. Right. So let's go back. We have the Constitution, mm -hmm. we have the law, we have the regulations, and then we have administrative policy. And what they did was an inversion. And it's very important we all understand inversion because they're doing inversion right now with the WHO Treaty and many other things. And we need to understand this trick. An inversion says, I can, I can craft 
an administrative policy that says I don't have to obey the constitution, the laws of the regulations, and that's okay. And the reality is it's not okay. No. No. So, so they and say, why aren't there lawyers jumping all over that? How can you, how can you pass a regulation that is unconstitutional? It was thanks to the American Federation of Scientists that we found it. It's a great guy named Steve Aftergood who would track the federal budget. And he found it. And, and so uh, Skidmore and I discovered it and we wrote and published about it. And finally, God bless him, Matt Taibbi picked up on it, wrote a great piece about it, even linked to the website with all the legal briefs. And, um, and I'm assuming the reason no one followed it up is they were too scared. I mean, Christina, I spent 36,000 hours working for free and $6 million to fight with the federal government over financial management. Not everybody feels like doing that. I mean, I'm lucky I'm alive. I think one of the problems here is that even though it's a stark problem, it's very clear, passing regulations that are unconstitutional, okay, uh, that allows them to hide what they're doing with our tax dollars. Uh, it's a big task because you're going up against this behemoth government. Right. This is fixable if we're willing to not get overwhelmed and pretend it's not happening. Oh, okay? I don't think only... there's any pretending what it's not happening because people are being impoverished, you know, right. so they know something's happening. They don't quite know what. We're talking fiscal policy, but if you combine it with what the Fed is doing on monetary policy, that it is this combination which is bankrupting people. 100% of the inequality in America comes from this. It doesn't come from technology. It doesn't come from globalization. It doesn't come from innovation. It doesn't come from any of that yakety yakety yak. It comes from this. It comes from criminal management of the federal credit mechanism, period, full stop. The Fed... In October, October 2018, the House and Senate, all of Congress and the Trump administration together agreed during the Kavanaugh hearings to keep the federal government finance a secret with FASB 56. So remember all those Republican and Democrats you thought were fighting that week? Right. They all got together and agreed to take this, the finances of the federal government secret. God. Now, when what you a- go to traitorous thing it's it's treason this is treason and if you go to um uh hudmissingmoney.solary.com we have an article by my attorney and i called caveat emptor about what happened and what this means to investors because when they took the federal government finance a secret they also took all disclosure for the for the majority of the u.s securities market and the u.s bond markets also secret oh my god Right. And, and let me tell you why. In 2006, the Bush administration approved a national security. They delegated the national security waiver to the national security director to waive all compliance with SEC disclosure for banks and contractors who work for the U.S. government if they want it. So the national security director can, can give the power for not only 24 covered agencies, and the, um, the 150 related agencies and all the contractors and banks, freedom from any proper disclosure. Now, what yeah. that means is- Oversight and oversight. Right, so when I pick up the financial statement for, let's say I own a stock in one of the big banks that owns the New York Fed. When I look at their financial statements, I have no idea what they mean. 
I don't know what's secret and what's not. I don't know what's been allowed to be kept secret. I, I don't know what they mean. They're meaningless. Why can't the government have its own bank? Why can't it Treasury? Can. And the I first mean, thing I would do is I would turn the government bank to a government bank owned by the government, a federal government bank run and operated by civil service that had been cleaned up from what we've got now. What would that take? Well, that's a good that question. I think, I think in theory, you could do it without legislation, but you would need a phenomenal political consensus behind you to do it. Um, and, and if enough of the small community bankers and credit unions understand that CBDC is designed to destroy them, you know, it might be possible to lead that and do that. I've always paid my taxes and I'm always going to pay my taxes because I believe that there are legitimate uses of that money and the people who need that money for those legitimate uses. The last thing I want to be is somebody who's pulling the rug out from under them. Right. Right. Our veterans deserve their military pension fund. You know, we, we've made all these commitments as a society, and I think there's nothing more important than keeping our contractual commitments to our people. Agreed. So, right. So I want to pay my taxes and I pay a huge amount of taxes anyway. So, um, um, when I finished the litigation, I got a settlement and I was in the process of trying to pay off all the creditors. And one of the creditors happened to be the bank that's the largest, or, or by FOIA, according to Bloomberg, is the percentage-wise the largest owner of the New York Fed. We have to remind the audience, the New York Fed is where our government puts our tax dollars. So it's our government's bank. Those, right. That group of banks, that's our government's bank. Owned by the members. <laughs> so the New York Fed is owned by the member banks who also act as agent for the New York Fed in being the depository. So for example, if you go to HUD, you know, your bank accounts, your servicing, your custodian or at our, all these big New York Fed banks, right? Okay. So I'm going through the list of creditors and one of the creditors is this large New York Fed member bank. I owed them $14,000 on a credit card, but at that time, the missing money was $14,000 per person. Okay. So I wrote them a letter and said, I owe, owe you $14,000, but you, as the depositor for the federal accounts, owe me $14,000 missing from federal accounts. So I'm going to assert a common law right of offset. And, and I'm going to satisfy my debt to you with your debt to me. That's what common law right of offset right of offset. Is. And then I said, here is my attorney's name and telephone number and address. If you have a problem with this, please contact my attorney and we'll be happy to litigate. <laughs> you write in, in the Solari report, taxation with or without representation, that it's up to more than 64000 dollars per right. person of missing money. So what if a large group of taxpayers uh, wrote to the federal government, didn't pay their taxes for a few years until 64,000 and just said, this year's uh, taxes that you say I owe to you, please take it off my tab that uh, you know, of this, please take it off from the $64,000 of my money that's missing in your account. Think of the government as a football and the other team are the bankers and they're trying to take the football away from us, right? 
So they've captured the football and we're trying to get it back. Right. So I'd much rather take the cash out of their pocket than out of the government's pocket because I'm trying to get the government back. But they're the ones who can't account for the money, right? In other words, you're not writing to your government. You're writing to the bank, right? And saying, hey, $64,000 of my money is missing. So you owe me that. In theory, if you had $64,000 of credit card debt with bank, that would work just fine. Oh, so you actually have to have a quid pro quo situation. You can't just go to the bank and say, listen, you lost $64,000 of my tax dollars. So you need to send me a check for $64,000. Right. Unless you have possession of the money. I had, you know, they had, I had spent their $14,000 on the credit card. Right. So in that sense, I had physical possession. Now, I would also not do that without an attorney. I had an attorney who I had worked through the letter and was prepared to defend me if I had to litigate. Let me get this clear. People who have credit cards with a New York Fed bank, okay? And what credit cards are those, by the way? When I tried to understand who owned the New York Fed, I would I emailed the head of PR. It was in, I think, 2000. It was in the early 2000s, and they said that's confidential information. We won't share it. What? Are, yeah, yeah, yeah. are, are government banks with them, and they can't tell us who they are? Yeah. And, oh, and wow. well, but then I said, who, who manages your data and does your, do your members have access to the data? Because if you have that, if you have the data of all the data they're collecting on what's happening, you know, financially and not just the government accounts, but the whole wire batches and goes through the New York Fed. I mean, you've got the money in all the economy. So that's insider intelligence that can make you a fortune. So I said, who has access to your data? Do you give your members access to your data and they wrote back and said that's private information that way that's confidential policy so they wouldn't tell me who manages their databases and payment systems nor you know how it got shared anybody who has a credit card with those banks can do this they can say well yeah i may owe you uh i right. may owe you twelve thousand dollars but, but you owe me uh, the common line right of offset. You owe me sixty four thousand. So right. now, uh, now here's the problem: they didn't come after me, but don't think they might not come after you. So you have to be prepared to have a fight. I wonder okay. if this could be done on a group basis, though. That's the way to do it. You yeah. want to get a you want to get group base going, and because I'll tell you, you know, I'm a great believer in honoring your debts. But what I'll tell you is, if you look at the fraudulent inducement that these guys have have uh engaged in as you know doing this is a highly ethical thing to do this is from conspiracy theorists ask who owns the fed here's the answer it was an institutional investor in february 24 uh uh, february 24 2020 and i think it was from a bloomberg foia Okay, Citibank owns 42.8%. JP Morgan Chase owns 29.4%. Morgan Stanley, 2.8%. Morgan Stanley Private Bank, 3.7%. Goldman Sachs, 4%. Bank of New York Mellon, 3.5%. HSBC Bank, 6.1%. And then trace amounts, tiny amounts by uh, one of the Japanese banks and then the Industrial and Commercial Bank of China. Okay, so if you have a credit card with any of those banks, you could exert <laughs> the common law right of offset to not pay whatever you owe because they have lost $64,000 of your money. Right. And it's probably to, growing. Right. 
Well, remember that's of 2015. Oh my God. So it's probably a lot more. Here's the most important thing. What we need is our tax money to be lawfully managed. And that's why I would love to see state states willing to act on this and start to escrow the money and literally say, you know something? So, so let, me, let me give you a perfect example. When I worked at HUD, I would find neighborhoods where 50 to 75,000 would buy and rehab a single foreclosed home and a foreclosed property right. inventory. And then in the HOPE 6 program, the public housing program, we were spending 250,000 per unit to build one unit, one apartment in that neighborhood. So within a contiguous four to 10 block area, when we could have spent 50 to 75 for one, we were spending 250. So we could have shut this program down and gotten two to four times as much housing with the money if we'd used the foreclosed property. Now I showed that to the woman who worked as the assistant to the person who ran the public housing and she turned the color of your blouse and she said, but how would we generate fees for our friends? The problem here too is, is sort of this compounded corruption. Right. Uh, the takers within this system uh, do not want this system to end and they're in the system. So Well, but the takers end up being all of us. So, so let me keep describing this. Yes, actually, yes. I had proposed in the Bush administration that we create jumbo waivers where a state or a county can come in with a plan that says we want to optimize money within this place. And if you will waive these regulations and other provisions, we can start to move money around and we can get four homes for the price of one. And, and essentially that was rejected for a variety of reasons, but one is, you know, you would lose central control of the money. Oh, so well, without central control, a lot of this, uh, a lot of this corruption would fall apart, right? Right. So all of this corruption has been built up from central control. So there is not a neighborhood in America where the federal government is not paying a contractor 125 per hour to do something that somebody in that neighborhood would love to do for $25 plus healthcare, right? So, so why pay a corporate contractor in Washington to do something? Why should we work at $20 an hour plus healthcare to earn enough money to pay 100,000 taxes in our lifetime to pay that contractor to do something that costs four times much to do it centrally. Let me talk about one of the actions that people can take, which is a very important step towards real solutions. And that is, so I was making a tool, a software tool called Unity Wizard in, at Hamilton Securities. If you read Dylan Reed in the Aristocracy of Stock Profits, I tell you all about it. And our theory was, let's get the data on how the government money works in your county, your town, your congressional district, your zip code. Let's put it in relational databases so you can get financial statements for your congressional district. And you can see how the money works. Because if you're going to hold your congressman accountable, you need to see how the money works in your place. So we started to build a software tool that would allow private people to do that privately without having to go to the government. Okay. So the Department of Justice seized our offices, seized the tool. It took me six years to get it out of, out of the court control. And when I did, the most valuable pieces were gone. So, which is to say, if you begin in your place to start collecting up and bringing transparency to how all the government money works in your town, your county, you're gonna to start to find incredible opportunities. What records so do you look for? You look at the budgets. 
You know, so the budget is the plan on how we're going to spend the money and the financial statements are the report on how we really did spend the money. Okay. So if you start with the budgets and the financial reports, there's something called the annual comprehensive annual financial report. It's government financial statements uh, for state, municipal, or other government entities. So if you just start getting all the data on, on sources and uses of money in the world you walk around and see. If the average citizen in their state, they want to do this, what, where, where are the places they go and what reports should they ask? ask so, okay, for? so the first thing is, you want to get an understanding of how the money works in your area, the government money. And you want to start with your, your county money and your state money, but then you want to see the federal money as well. So you want to get intellectual mastery. We have a Solari report that's public called Unpacking Your Financial Ecosystem. And we take a, a county in Idaho and we walk around and sort of show you all the resources to, to find that. Ideally, if you organize with a group, we, we encourage people to do something we call Solari Circles. You get together with a group of people. Ideally, you have somebody who's a CPA or accountant or you know, who likes numbers and is good with money who can really help you. Okay, so step number one is to look at how the money. Step number two is what, what, are, the, what are the things that are causing you to get drained? So let's say the school you know, we've seen a lot of parents go to the school board and complain about what's happening to their, their kids in school and they're paying the property taxes to fund the school. What I tell them is if you dig and look at all the money, I'm sure you're going to find a lot of dirt. <laughs> if you yeah. want to move a school board out, you know, do, do a citizen's audit on that school board. You know, so this game can be played locally or at the state level too. Can you just give me some examples of reports that you look for? The budgets and financials for your county, right? for your state. And then you want to look at the consolidated annual financial report and see what it says about the federal money being spent in your locale. That's where I would start. So you go to the budget offices for each so level? Each executive branch of each level has a, you know, the equivalent of a budget officer, a chief financial officer. There's also something called participatory budgeting, which is also designed to help people do this. What does that so, mean? When the disaster capitalism happened in Latin America in the early 2000s, yeah. um, a group of citizens in Port Alegro busted in essentially the government and said, we're going to do the budgets with you. We, the citizens, are going to participate in, in understanding the money and whacking up the money. And, and we're not just going to sit passively while you do the budgets. Now, let me tell you why this is important. I used to be uh, senior or uh, an, an underwriter for the New York City, and they had a one wonderful budget office. He used to she ran the the equivalent of OMB at New York City, and she used to tear her hair out because every year they'd spend 150 million on littering, on on picking up litter, and she would say, you know, if the citizens understood what we could do with this $150 million if we didn't have to pick up litter, if they would just stop littering, we could use this to save children's lives. We could use this to make sure children have proper nutrition. We could use this to help the homeless. You know, people are dying and we're spending money on picking up litter. And, and so there's a, you know, there's a feedback loop that can happen between citizens and the budget process that can really change behavior in a good way. 
the people who run the information and payment systems must be civil service. There, there are many allegations and rumors of corruption in the civil service. And, and you know, without getting into whether true or not, you need an uncorrupted civil service who can be protected from corruption. If I'm a civil servant, I need to be free to do my job without my family being threatened and their lives being threatened. One thing that's really important, normally our wrap-ups wrap are, are subscriber only. We have made taxation public because this is something, you know, that everybody needs to talk about. Okay. And if anybody wants to send a copy of the hard copy to their legislator and they send me their letter to the legislator, I will add it to a hard copy and I will mail it to their legislator. Nice. Okay. Okay. So, so I'm happy to send out thousands if that's what it takes. You send your letter to your representative with their address on it. Um, to taxation mailing at Solari, P.O. Box 157, Hickory Valley, Tennessee, 38042. And we will add a taxation. Give people an idea of what the letter should say. The letter should say, we cannot continue to finance operations outside the law, whether you know, the federal government is in violation of the financial management laws, and they are outside the law on these other issues that I care about. It could be, you know, giving away our national sovereignty to the WHO Treaty. Um, this week on the Slayer Report, I will publish a series of letters I'm writing to my representatives about you can't let them give away our sovereignty in the WHO Treaty. So those right. will be up. So you say, you know, this must be dealt with, we have to deal with. And I believe that this presentation you know, by Solari can help you think through some of the issues and possibilities. And I'm sending this and, and I'm asking as a citizen, how can I help you deal with this? How can I support you doing the right thing as a government official to deal with this? Okay. And, and then I would say thank you for, you know, serving. Because everybody right now who's serving in a serious government position, it's a hard job. I still want to go back to the overarching structural changes and finish that conversation. Uh, first, we're talking about the treasury issuing money directly as opposed to um, using the Fed right. uh, to deposit our money. We could have the, the, the United States government can have its own bank. You have, the, you have the New York Fed, who's the bank, but they also um, are very involved with treasury and overseeing the primary dealers, which is the group of banks that issue our securities. And so there needs to be integrity in that operation. The New York Fed also manages the exchange stabilization fund. So you need to create a capacity to manage the primary dealer function and the exchange stabilization fund that has integrity. Couldn't that all be done again by the government's own bank? In theory, it could, but currently the pay schedule on the government is going to be, it's going to be difficult to get the talent. So you're going to want to create something that's subject to transparency, but will also let you buy and pay the talent you need to do it. Where are you going to get such an organization when they're all? <laughs> you can, it's, it can be done. Yeah. I mean, the New York Fed has run, you know, the open market desk and done a lot of pretty sophisticated things. So you can do it. But what was very unfortunate when they voted for going direct, they hired BlackRock to help them do it because they didn't have the, I'm assuming they didn't have the capacity, but you know, that's, you know, that's worse than doing what you can do with what you've got. Is the New York Fed involved 
or a proponent of this great reset scenario. Of course. So the Fed voted for it and implemented it and the New York Fed with them. So, so this has been implemented. I mean, have you watched the, in, in last week in two places, I posted a two and a half minute video of Richard Werner in the conference in Malmo, Sweden, describing the central bankers disclosure to him that they were planning on shipping us. Now, Richard Werner, in my opinion, is the top academic expert on central banking globally, top. He's the guy who wrote The Princes of the Yen and did the Princes of the Yen documentary on the Japanese central bank. And he's done more to disclose how the central banking system works. And he tells, we can watch it right now if you want to. I would know. love to watch that. Let's now, have you watched the Karstens video as well? The 56 second? Let's just do that right now. Our analysis on CBDC in particular for the use of general, to the general use, uh, we tend to establish the equivalence with cash. Uh, and there is a huge difference there. Uh, for example, in cash, uh, we don't know, for example, who's using a $100 bill today. We don't know who is using a 1,000 peso bill today. Uh, a key difference in, with the CBDC is that central bank will have absolute control on the rules and regulations that will determine the use of that uh, expression of central bank liability. And also we will have the technology to enforce that. Those, are, those two issues are extremely important and that makes a huge difference with respect to what, she, to what cash is. That is the general manager of the Bank of International Settlements on October 2020 in an IMF panel. What is his name? Augustine Karstens. He's Mexican. Let's go okay. to the next one. It's possible that uh, even if you have to have CBDC in some form, that you're not destroying the banking system. If you do it the way China is doing it, now you have to remember China only recently introduced their banking system and it seems they were not willing to already give it up. They have already CBDC, it's still a pilot project, but it's introduced you know, among millions of people already. But it was introduced on purpose in such a way that it would not harm the banking system and therefore is a more um, truthful sort of update of the, of the old paper money. Um, but of course, it still has the control aspect. So at least it's not killing the banking system. Uh, the way they do this is by um, requiring you to have a bank account in order to get CBDC. So it's not a direct account at the central bank. It's only through your bank that you can get it. You see how simple that is. And of course, could be done over here, but they're not discussing it in, the, in say, the ECB is not discussing it because you see their agenda is to get rid of banks. But this alternative exists. But then, of course, the key problem is this control aspect, um, which at the moment they haven't stepped up in China, but that can be introduced any time. And that, of course, is a concern. Also, they never talk about the nature of the CBDC. What, what is it actually going to look like? They never talk about that. Right. Um, but I heard one European central banker tell me what it's going to look like. He saw it. He was invited to one of the old central banks in Europe that are very much promoting this. And they showed him. And, you know, he's, he's a 
top um, you know, executive director of another central bank in Europe, and there's no reason to believe that he was telling me a story. Um, and it was around this, this large and would be implanted under your skin. So that is the plan. Right. And of course, that has other implications on top of what we've mentioned, on top of the control aspects, because that actually enters your, your body, in my view, violates, uh, violates human dignity and can be then used for uh, even in terms of functionality beyond the monetary and economic transaction purposes. So highly dangerous and definitely something we have to oppose. And so using cash is one of the things we can do to make sure um, that it will be the hurdle will be higher for the central planners to introduce the CBDC. They want to return to slavery. It seems to me that these suggested go to your, your state representatives, go do this. This is, these are such small actions for- I totally disagree. Really? I totally disagree. And I'll tell you why. You know who's building this? Who? We are. We're going to work and we're building the control grid. We're building the financial train tracks. We're implementing this. We are implementing this and we have the power to stop implementing it. We are financing it. We have the power to stop financing it. And I don't wanna hear for, for, for my, the last 30 years of my life, I've watched while everybody in America said, it's okay for this centralization to keep on going as long as I make money and I get a check, okay? And so, we are building the digital concentration camps. We are building this system and we are financing the system. And you know something? We have the power to stop. And it takes thousands of tiny little actions by thousands and millions of people. And it can be stopped. And I don't want to hear that because for 30 years, I've watched everybody say, I'm not important. So I can take a check and I don't have to be bothered and I can go along because I'm unimportant. And you know something? It's a bullshit excuse. I'm tired of hearing it. We have two choices. We can march ourselves into the digital concentration camp and make money on it, or we can just stop it. And we have the power to stop it. We still have the power to stop it. Now, a day will come when we don't have the power to stop it, but I don't want to hear from anybody, oh, it's too hard, it's too big, it's too little. You know, if you think it's hard or big now, you should have seen what I started doing this 30 years ago. And I never once said, it's too big, I can't do this. And I've done everything I can in my power. And you know something, you can too, because if you look at the alternative, you're gonna be a slave. So you might as well die fighting. 